When in doubt, breathe it out, y'all. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Future Mycelium podcast, and we're doing it. We're manifesting our very first mushroom after hours. Think about those like Sirius XM. This is mushroom after hours. <laughs> so um, come on into the cocktail lounge. We've got reishi tonics and giant velvet sofas in the shape of Amanitas and maybe actual furniture made by Ecovative because they actually have made furniture out of mycelium and I'm trying to fill my entire house with that. How are we all doing today? It's March 2nd, 2022, and I think a lot of us are feeling a lot of things, and I guess for me, I'm feeling very much like I don't need any more world events. I'm pretty tired of world events. I don't need another history book to be written about anything. I think a lot has already happened, so why does more need to continue to occur? Why does there need to be more happenstances? Why do there need to be more circumstances within those happenstances? And why do people have to take stances within those circumstances and those happenstances? Mm. Sometimes I think if any of us have anything to say, we should raise our hands first and then place them over our mouths. I think that's kind of where I'm at just because there's a lot of noise in the world and I don't, I don't have a want for it. In this current moment. Amen. I would also like to go to a hut. And if any of you watch The Witcher, hut hut. That was me in the hut. That's my hut. I'm gonna go to the hut and I'm gonna stay there. And if I ever come back out, um, it would be for the most dire of circumstances and dire of reasons because when I'm in that hut, I'm self-sustaining in that hut, okay? It's an off-grid hut and it's an amazing hut, okay? I'm not hoveling, I'm thriving in that hut and I don't need anyone except for the fungi. Yeah, that's kind of how we're feeling and it's also a new moon. I don't know if any of you like to follow the cycles of the moon. I know that at the very least, I like to follow it for the sake of a constant representation and a constant reminder of the cyclical nature of nature <laughs> and something about the fullness and the emptiness of the moon and how that reflects in myself when I do pay attention to it is also nice because it's like, hey, I'm not the only one in need of refilling my cup. So is the moon. And the moon is amazing and everyone loves moons, as we've discussed, at least on my Future Mycelium Instagram, we have discussed. So I guess before we get into the episode today, I want us all to take a little second to feel grateful for some things, as a cliche as it might be, but I don't care because it's my show and gratitude really is the attitude, okay? I'm feeling grateful for the sun today is very sunny outside. I'm feeling grateful for my sense of energy and clarity and the, I'm feeling grateful for all of the information that I've been allowing to sink into my bones in order to create this episode today. I'm grateful for all of you who like to listen and have brain wavelengths that resonate with the things that I say. I think many of us have felt like we've lived lives that where it was hard to find people, no matter how hard we tried to force conversations anywhere along the veins of entry points of fungi or what they represent. Even peripherally, it's kind of been a lifetime of searching for those people and I'm grateful to have the internet and people who have the same level of um, zest and zeal for mycology as I. And that means I never feel isolated for wanting to discuss our info dump or learn more. I feel grateful for cacao and reishi and cordyceps. Uh, I've been doing ceremonial cacao lately in addition to the mushrooms. I've learned a lot from Florencia Friedman, 
who is the owner of Cacao Laboratory, who talks a lot about the ceremony around cacao. She produced a really amazing uh, little documentary just in the length, not that it was little in its depth and breadth and realizations around cacao, but it was a shorter documentary on YouTube that you can watch on their um, Cacao Laboratory YouTube about the origins of cacao, what it represents to the people of South Central America. Also, people in Hawaii are also making cacao, and I only knew that recently because of an account that creates cacao. I think their name is Four Something Vol Five Volcanoes, and they're making cacao in the shape of skulls, and if y'all haven't noticed or picked up on it. Another motif that I'm totally obsessed with is skulls. I love them. I have a Swarovski skull necklace. I think I like skulls and shells for the same reason because they are an extant form of something that's passed on and I find skulls really beautiful and I find shells very beautiful and those are both things that people can appreciate and enjoy even when there is a part of that life force that is no longer there. Yeah, there's a cacao company called Four, Four Manos E5 Volcanoes, but maybe it's um, Uno dos, tres, cuatro. Cuatro manos y uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco. I haven't taken Spanish since high school. Cinco volcanoes underscore cacao. So these people must maybe not be of Hawaiian origin necessarily, or they maybe they are, but they also speak Spanish. Mm, but yeah, I saw in their story yesterday, they were making cacao in the shape of skulls and it's like their latest offering. And I have so much cacao sitting in my cabinet, but I'm like, well, I don't have skull shaped cacao now, do I? I'd love to learn more about that company. I'm so happy to see what those kind of companies are sharing. If if you don't know anything about cacao, I will just very briefly glaze over why I like to take it and why it's serving something for me right now because I've never done ceremonial cacao before. I mean, hot chocolate, yeah, but hot chocolate and the chocolate that you buy from the store is not the same as ceremonial grade cacao. I mean, I felt an urge to start working with different kinds of plant and fungal allies for a couple of years. And as we discussed in episode three of Reishi answering the jungle cat's call, that I discussed why I was taking Reishi. And many of you, a very liberal handful of you have reached out and told me that you bought the rainbow mushrooms, Reishi tinctures, and same. <laughs> I'm happy to have turned you on to it. I found out about cacao from Caro Aravayo, who is an artist that I love to follow and I'm a Patreon supporter of, and she talked a lot about cacao and has a series on her YouTube called Plants in Our Cups, and she's always kind of discussed it. So just by her constantly bringing it up and I guess me familiarizing myself with it and seeing that it was something that was really bringing something to her life as someone who inspires a lot of us, I thought maybe there's something in it for me. And then obviously I found Florencia Friedman and I started learning about the cacao. Um, so basically what cacao is, is the cacao bean but it is lightly roasted it's fermented it's turned into a paste by hand by local people in belize ecuador i guess hawaii now peru those areas and for those peoples who make it it is such an important ritual and i think it's just important to bring that part up that it's definitely something that i'm appreciating from their culture and i'm so happy that they are willing to share that with the world because that ancient medicine really is what it is is so wonderful and what it does is it's at its core a cardiac stimulator and if you think about the coffee bean the coffee bean is a nervous system stimulator and I have a very particular way I was built I was built different okay and coffee the general mainstream stimulants of the world they really don't do it for me I feel worse or I want to go to bed <laughs> but cacao and matcha seem to do something a little different I like that cacao has a different way of waking you up and stimulating you and it's considered a heart opener obviously because it is a cardiac stimulator so the way I like to do it in the 
morning is I like to be in a fasted state. So I just haven't eaten anything yet. And I like to make it in a few different ways, but preparing it in a certain dosage, anywhere from 28 to well shy of 50 grams is enough. (laughs) And you don't want to do more than that because it can start to feel, you feel a little bit too manic or ungrounded if you take too much, too much of anything isn't. And I like to mix it with my mushrooms. And sometimes I really like to do, so there's, this might sound gross, but hear me out. I went to the Asian store a few weeks ago and there was a stevia sweetened chocolate and not not ceremonial cacao just regular eating chocolate and it it was flavored ginger and lemon and i was like that sounds astringent and it also sounds maybe soapy and i'm not sure about it but i'm like you know throw caution to the wind give it a try and actually it was now one of my favorite flavors ever of ginger and lemon so i was like okay you know i'm gonna try to recreate that in my cacao so i have and so good it tasted very similar to the chocolate from the store otherwise you can brew a tea and then you can mix the tea with a cacao you can add a little milk if you want to you can add other supplements to it there's a lot of different ways to prepare it there's not like a super rigid way but it's all about the intention that you're infusing into it as you make it and that you're stopping to chop this cacao paste and i know like a paste it sounds like something that's like wet it's not it's like a block of chocolate but it's also softer than that it's a little interesting uh, to describe but chopping it before i put it in the blender thinking about what i'm grateful for and then mixing it up and then when you drink it i mean yeah it tastes great i usually add a couple of dates too and when you start to drink it it is incredibly wholesome it's very filling Sometimes it's even felt like complimentary or felt like a good good replacement for breakfast or not like something I can have and then wait a few hours before I eat something. And then the sensation of drinking it when it's like fully in your body, I like to, it kind of depends where your headspace is at because if you stay distracted and you try to force yourself away from the experience of it, you can kind of forget that it's going on in the background. But if you try to make a part of your morning in ceremony to it and think more intentionally or journal or listen to some peaceful music and just take a moment before you start your day you can really feel it and you know the language of the heart is something that all of us are sent here on earth to figure out how to understand and live in harmony with and some of us are closer than others and some of us prioritize ways of purifying the heart more than others But this is one of those things that can become an automated part of your day. And it doesn't necessarily have to be cacao. It can be matcha, you know, especially if you're taking an adaptogenic plant or fungal ally. I think that that's also a great way to center ourselves. But I really have enjoyed what I'm learning from cacao because it's another one of those things that's, you know, it's a heart opener. And then the heart, I believe, is like the seed of knowledge. And and when we're able to listen to that, we're able to go about our days doing the things that are the most important and urgent to us, but are also the most important and urgent things to our quote unquote work we're supposed to be doing on earth. It also has really high amounts of magnesium and that's great for me and many of us who are super depleted in magnesium. Sometimes I wonder even if the fruit and vegetables or the grains I'm buying from the store, how depleted are they given the quality of our soil nowadays? But cacao really does have that magnesium. And there's also something that I found similar to holotrophic breathing. I don't know if any of you have ever done that before, but if you don't know what it is, it's a breathing technique where you you basically oxygenate your blood. And then when your blood is really oxygenated by you doing very deep and rapid breathing, you basically exhale all of your oxygen and like sit in that state for as long as you can handle it and then breathe again. And after doing a few cycles of of holotrophic breathing, you'll like kind of come back to your you know, beta brainwave state and just be in your functioning normal wake state. And you'll feel when you're taking deep breaths as if 
the breath after you've had a really good restorative cry is like how it'll feel when you do holotrophic breathing. And I've noticed a very similar thing with drinking cacao is that when it's really in my body, I'll start to take like deep breaths and I'll, it'll feel like every breath is that breath after you've cried. And that's always something I look forward to after I've had a cry is like when you take that really relaxing exhale after you've, you've released is like, oh, it's like a medicinal exhale. And I found that from both holotrophic breathing and from the cacao. And that indicates something to me that it's doing something too. <laughs> but yes, I am grateful for cacao. I'm grateful for a lot of other things as well. I'm grateful for the present moment and I'm grateful for the fact that I feel most grounded and most powerful and most in agency of my life when I focus on the here and now and what I have the most immediate control over because the things that we have the most immediate control over are the things that are the most useful to us and others. And sometimes we can forget that when we feel the need to be informed about many things going on in the world, which you shouldn't be uninformed, okay? But I think sometimes we get a little immobilized or we freeze or get compassion fatigue from feeling overwhelmed by how how many things we wish we could change and the most immediate change that you can make is between your friends and your family and your neighbors or your co-workers and you know the thing that you can start doing five minutes from now or 30 seconds from now to shift your state or to do something where you're happening to life and life's not just happening to you is the most useful thing to you and that's something that I find very grounding when there are many things going on in the world that want to root me up <laughs> and toss me into space. I'll have plenty of time for that when I'm dead. Now, I felt like the Mushroom After Hours podcast episode today was going to be good because I have a lot of miscellaneous mycological knowledge I'd like to share today that doesn't really have a theme beyond, wouldn't it be nice if you had this information? Because when I learned it, I'm happy. I'm happy and I wish everyone knew. That's kind of the information I want to share today. I've read a couple of books. I read a couple of chapters from certain books we'll discuss. And and I also am doing this podcast episode because it lines up better with the timing that I'm doing for an Irish myth and the Fae episode and how it relates to ethnomycology. And this piqued my interest after listening to a couple of lectures from the one and only Terrence McKenna about how how perhaps the fairy world can be accessed through different tryptamine hallucinogens, be that DMT or through magic mushrooms. And I'm finding... So there's a man, and I've talked about it on my stories, about um, a man who wrote several books about mythological beings and folklore and specifically has a guide to hunting field fairies or a field guide to hunting fairies that's what it was a field guide to hunting fairies maybe some of them are in a field his name is bob coran and bob coran has a blog bob coran has a website and he was updating quite a lot up until 2013 he's written a couple of other books i believe about fairies as well and he's irish he lives in ireland i think he lives in da county down over there somewhere in the mountainsides and i think he really likes to not be able to be found and as of late he has not been easy to find and he hasn't wanted to be found which i found unfortunate because i would have loved to have him on the show but who knows you know maybe he'll just pop up out of the woodwork i'm really hoping for that you know the other thought i had too is like maybe he's a bit aged at this point he wrote those books back in the 90s i think he's in his mid 70s and by the time you reach your 70s here's what i think about the 70s okay like people who reach that age that there are so many ways that somebody who's 70 years old can go depending on so many different factors about their lifestyle what both what was within and without of their control the different decisions they made to protect their bodies as they age like how much they exercise like how much this uv radiation they were exposed to like whatever all these different things that can really contribute to the different kinds of 70 year olds you'll see right so i'm just not sure what kind of 70 
70-plus-year-old man Bob Coran is. <laughs> so it could be that he's really retired and just like living his best life in the mountainside, or, you know, maybe not. Maybe he's more involved on a local scale. He definitely talked on his on his blog, at least in 2013, which was, was that when I started college? That was a while ago or approaching a decade ago. He wrote as well on his about page that he's involved in local politics or also in the government in Ireland. And, you know, he's not just a folklorist, an expert folklorist. So I actually reached out to Jim Harold from Jim Harold's Campfire. I don't know if any of you like to listen to that show, but I'm a little spooky girl at the end of the day. And I haven't listened to it so much recently, but when I first moved to Norway and I didn't have any friends, I had the Jim Harold's podcast and it was people calling in and talking about all their different stories about the supernatural and the paranormal. And I'm somebody who's just perpetually open to different people's experiences. And I like to just like absorb and witness what other people say about their existence and add that to my artillery of knowledge that I have. But I don't necessarily feel a compulsion to believe in it in a deep, deep way, necessarily. I, I find more magic in just getting to listen to story time and getting to feel. There's a comfort in things that are spooky and paranormal and, and unknown to me. And I've had my experiences as well, but even having my own experiences, I'm not really sure how I feel about them. And I guess there's always going to be an element of mystery to it. But when there's a mystery to it and it's sort of just out of reach and it's just around the corner and it's not exactly in your mind's, mind's eye, you know, beyond what you can imagine. It's also safer than the world. <laughs> and I think that's why a lot of us like spooky stories as well. But yeah, I contacted Jim Harold and I asked him, I'm like, do you have any connection to Bob Coran? Because Jim Harold had Bob Coran on his episode how many years ago? I don't know, a long time ago. Like around the time 2013, 20, 2011, maybe something like that. Because Jim Harold has been podcasting forever. <laughs> he has been doing the trade of podcasting for a long time. And he responded to me super promptly. He's like, I'm in the same boat as you. I don't know where Bob Coran is. And I've been trying to get him to come back on because um, Jim Harrell has a few different podcasts. He has got that campfire and then he has got one. I know he's got some other ones that are about like paranormal, but he brings on like experts in their field. And Bob Coran came onto his show. It was episode 174 of one of his podcasts. I have yet to listen to it. He's like, I can't get a hold of Bob Cran. And I'm like, well, I guess, you know, he's he's like, but if you do happen to get in touch with Bob Cran, let me know if he's doing well. Let me know if he's doing okay. Because I've been thinking about him a lot. I guess I have to assume, I mean, this man has written 30, 40 books. He's written a lot. Like he's well known. And, you know, I just have the audacity to go ask the people <laughs> who have done the most because you never know. They might want to come on to a smaller podcast. Um, So I was really looking and digging and trying to find a way to get in contact with him. Him, but he won't come out unless he wants to come out. So maybe in the future though, maybe he'll want to come out sometime after the Irish Myth and the Fae episode comes out. Everyone collectively, let's think in our mind's eye, Bob Coran, come out, where are you? <laughs> and you know, the things about the Irish Myth and the Fae, something I, the way I went into it was like, you know, this is going to be easy. It's just going to be a couple of stories about fairies. And then, you know, maybe I'll find some ethnomycological understandings that some fairies live in mushrooms and we'll call it a day or like that's all I'll, that's all I'll really have to contribute to the podcast before somebody else comes on and then I fell down the fairy hole I started watching videos and trying to learn more and it's just so deep it's such a huge cultural component of different parts of the UK and Ireland and Scotland specifically and there's a lot of differing opinions about it and what they represent and that some fairies are good and some fairies are bad and a lot of Irish people you'll ask oh do you believe in fairies They'll be like, no, but, 
right? So they're kind of superimposed in this sort of belief, lack of belief mindset about them. But then another layer to it that I didn't really realize is that there is such a thing as the fairy faith that there is a set of belief around fairies that people might be following. And so I was also like, well, I don't want to sensationalize or exotify somebody's like faith as well. And also, did you notice the word fae is in the word faith? <laughs> there must be something to it. But I went and found somebody who, and I'm sorry, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he, if you look up like Irish myth youtube videos like his videos come up first but he brought up a book recommendation that i'm currently working on for the podcast episode titled i'm listening to it on audible on and off the fairy faith in celtic countries by w.y evans wentz with a forward by terence mckenna and that's what kind of drew me in because terence has also done a few lectures about the the fairies as well and i've been trying to find his conversations about it but when people upload lectures from terence mckenna and maybe i brought this up before like they're not topic based beyond super broad topics of space time your autonomy and agency and your spiritual belief and you know conversations about different types of hallucinogens but like specifically him discussing fairies i've only found like a couple that have been extracted from his videos or of his like four hour long lectures and i just don't know if i have the time to sit through and listen to f like 80 hours of lectures from him to like find that information from him but i will continue to keep searching and looking you know information doesn't give itself up easily the forest doesn't give itself up easily any knowledge that you're seeking takes a little effort takes a little grind you know so i guess all i'm saying to bring this up is that maybe something you also wonder too like how do i assemble the information there's a big divine hand to play for me with it for sure. Like I will put out the intention or I get like visions of each episode. Like I'll finish an episode and you know, I'm never really satisfied once I've created something, I've got to just create something new immediately. So my brain starts looking for different ideas or different angles to talk about mycology. And then once I've decided, then I start researching and just pouring over text for as many hours of the day that I have the time for, right? And then writing and keeping things in mind. And now obviously it's so nice to have guests come onto the podcast because... <laughs> I would love to think I could be an expert in everything, but I'm not. It's a whole it's a whole process to create a podcast episode one to the next. And so today I was like, it's interesting to take a different route to put this out when it's just me conversing with you all one-sided. But one-sided long-winded monologues are not a problem for me. And I guess that's also why I'm in the podcasting business. Not that I have any sponsors yet, but we're working on it. So with all of this aside, looking forward to the next episode and sharing gratitude and talking about cacao for 25 minutes. We're going to talk about a little bit today as we're going to talk about a book I read from Suzanne Simard that is titled Finding the Mother Tree. And then we're going to allow that to be a jumping off point to talk about how forests talk to one another and the importance of the complexity of forests. I'm making a supplemental vlog for this as well, where I will be discussing a little bit about trees and I go out into the forest and look at it with new eyes. And that was supposed to be the basis of this episode today. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about the difference about ectomycorrhizal fungi and our arbuscular fungi or endophytic fungi and their connection to plants. And then I have some other questions I'm still trying to find answers about that I'm going to talk about in this episode. And maybe some of you will have information that you'd like to share. I also wanted to talk a little bit about morals, um, morels, morcellas, and the upcoming foraging season 
um, because I'm getting a lot of messages from you, like increasingly more engagement. And I don't think it has as much to do with me as it does to do with people's antsiness to go outside and start foraging. So having a lot of conversations with people who are growing mushrooms or who are looking forward to it, or I've shared a couple photos of things I've gone and found, mostly just polypores in the winter forest right now. Share those online and finding people are very latched on to helping me identify them because it's low traffic season for a lot of people with uh, mushroom identification. And it's no pressure. We're just here to talk about stuff that we enjoy about fungi and about trees and about plants. So let's get into it. Mycology and fungi admittedly have taken precedence in my mind over botanicals about the plant kingdom. And I mean, there are a lot of plants, but now I'm increasingly more interested in them because upwards of 80%, I believe, of all plants on the planet, the plantnet, have a relationship with fungi in their root systems. And there are a lot of different specific ways that I think this is a five or six different connections, either within the roots or within the plants that fungi can connect themselves to. And I'm only going to talk about ectomycorrhizal and endophytic fungi or like arbuscular mycorrhiza, talk about the differences between those. But yeah, I started getting more interested in plants because of their relationship to fungi. I'm like, oh, well, actually they're all interconnected and I'm actually questioning. And a lot of us were questioning in the lichen podcast about how distinct are different species species and kingdoms when they're so interconnected underground. Yeah, but I found an amazing book from Suzanne Simard who... Wouldn't you know it, if you've watched Fantastic Fungi, the term coined the Wood Wide Web came from her research. She spent her whole life dedicated to, well, I think the heart of her motivation was to, and I, and I don't think that her, her goals have necessarily been achieved in this way, but the clear cutting of forests in British Columbia is something that's happening at a super rapid rate and the regulations aren't reflective of the research that indicates this level of clear cutting is really bad. So there hasn't been much change in the lumber industry even recently, but nonetheless, her research went to show that there's a preconceived notion that lumbers, lumberjacks, I guess, what do we call them lumberjacks? Loggers. Loggers, those who are cutting down forests and those who create policy around cutting down forests has some pretty dominator mentalities around trees and that like it's best to cut down the competition between trees and only grow one set of trees in a forest like why would we keep birch and fir around together or or alder trees when they're stealing carbon or they're stealing water from one another and it's limiting these trees growth because there are certain trees that have like pines right like have a higher value of higher resale value and so i think more than anything, policymakers and those who make the money from logging wanted to cut down and replant forests in a way that w they would ideally like their outcome to come, right? Like, I, wouldn't it be nice if a plantation of trees of just one type of tree and no other plants could grow in harmony together so that you could cut them down in 50 years and have a really great profit? But Suzanne Simard's research was the opposite of that. And it was she who really discovered the interconnected web of mycorrhizae in the soil and how trees are interconnected and in speaking to one another and that trees have mycorrhizal um, relationships with different types of fungi and that these relationships are really important to the integrity of the soil for the growth of the tree and that basically the more complex the forest is the more naturally occurring the forest is the more healthy that forest is and the more stability it has against pathogens against forest fires its ability to rebound from natural disasters or even man-made disasters is is 
more intact when that forest is untouched. She also discusses that there are certain type of fungi that are very specific to the old growth forest that can't necessarily be found in other parts of the world. And that when we destroy those forests, we might potentially, and even Paul Stamets has said, said this too, that cutting down those forests might mean we're losing more than just the trees. We're losing medicines from different types of fungi or different types of plants. And Suzanne Simard wanted the world to know that this is how the forest works. They work in reciprocity, that even if a birch is taking more carbon from a fir, that there are different points in the growing season where fir is giving more carbon to birch or that alder trees take up a lot of water during a certain type of season, but then release that water and are able to help other trees grow during different parts of the season. And that these myths that were kind of floating around the logging industry were very short-sighted. And that isn't, is it not just a reflection of dominator culture or just like Western culture, colonizing culture to assume that we need to dominate one thing over another, right? And so therefore wouldn't the forest be in constant competition and constantly to outwin one another when Suzanne Simmer's research says that yes there is competition but there is no competition if there's not symbiosis and symbionts right in the soil and constant connection and sharing of resources so that they can all thrive so maybe this competition is just really a result like this thriving nature of trees has more to do with the symbiosis between trees than it does with them competing with one another it is a game of give and take or it is a dance of give and take right and there, there are different aged trees in the forest. There are mother trees, there are teenage trees, there are baby trees, right? There are saplings. And keeping in mind something I always have in the back of my mind when even when I'm podcasting is that all humans really do best and remember and retain information best when we can anthropomorphize things or kind of center our experiences or compare our experiences as humans to other, other organisms. So this sort of anthropomorphization of the forest, I'm always a little hesitant. Like I like the analogy too. I don't think that it's necessarily bad, but I think if we don't understand at the end of the day that trees are not humans and they might not be experiencing their level of care for their young in the forest as we do for babies like there could actually be difference there that they can't articulate to us because they're trees so just something i keep in the back of my mind but yes there are these mother trees they're teenage trees they're baby trees the mother trees are able to share information and to share nutrients with baby trees they're little baby trees they're saplings they're able to clear out um different space for their trees to grow when i took all this information and then i went on to the forest myself yesterday that and also with my knowledge of lichen in the forest it was really easy to distinguish these mother trees from their young and also seeing that some of the young were planted really close together there'd be like four or five saplings growing right next to one another and some of these older trees were covered in beard lichen the ones that like you'd see on an old wizard or something i found so much beard lichen on the really big old trees in the forest of my neighborhood so walking around the forest yesterday after reading this book and after starting this podcast when i've been inside for a lot of months because i don't really enjoy going out into deep snow or when it's too cold i don't i don't really like to go outside to be honest i have you know had a few months hiatus from the forest beyond a couple of walks into town here and there otherwise i just work out inside and i've been getting super squirrely <laughs> um but yeah yesterday i went out with all this information i've been gathering about mushrooms in the forest and i really started to see the forest with new eyes i was able to look for things and to pay attention to the forest in a way i've never been able to do before and that was really gratifying because i've been reading about it i've been in the theory of it for months and to actually go out yesterday was really really gratifying i also found a tree and in my vlog i share this I found a tree that was cut down because this area of the forest is 
where a lot of trees are being cut down actually for I'm assuming homes are going to be built in this area, but there's been a lot of clear cutting around this forest on like 300, 200, 270 degrees of the perimeter of this forest in my neighborhood is being rebuilt or basically being cut down to be built for, I don't know, probably just homes, I would assume. And there was a tree that was cut down and I went over to count the rings and based on the size of the trees, you know, because these trees, not like the old growth forest, like redwoods seem to be pretty thick, right? Some trees are pretty thick. They're the most, or the second most common tree in Norway is called the Furu Tre, and it's called the Scottish pine or the Baltic pine. And I could see like 12 of them in my from, from where I'm recording right now. They're really tall, but they're not like the thickest looking trees compared to their height. So I kind of thought like, oh, maybe it's going to be like 40 rings on this tree. Like maybe it's 40 years old, but the rings on the tree were really thin and some thinner than others. And what I've learned from um, just researching a little bit about the, the rings on trees is that the thicker the rings and the darker the rings, the more of a rainy period they had or more access they had to nutrients. Like they had a pretty thriving growing season. And then some, some areas where the rings are so, so thin are areas or years of drought or stress on the tree or lack of water and nutrients or access that they would have had in comparison to the thicker rings. So as I went through this tree, I was a rough guesstimate because some of these rings were so thin that they almost looked like they were collapsing in on one another. And it would happen in sort of series of, of decades because this tree was shy of 200 years old. And I was super underestimating it, I guess, because I didn't really, I haven't really looked that closely at the, at the rings of trees before, but I started counting and you'd see that like 10 or 15 years, the rings would be really thin. And then there would be another, you know, decade where the, there, there was like an average thicker line and, and the tree had had one specific year where the line was really thick and dark. And I'm like, wow, it's like reading the history of the tree. And then I also felt a little sad, you know, felt like my tree hugger self came out. I'm like, this tree grew for 200 years like this tree has been around for two and a half of my lifetimes and now I just got cut down and I'm like and it seemed like a tree like that was kind of just still within the forest where they wouldn't be mm, constructing any buildings and I was like why did they have to cut down this 200 year old tree and thinking like looking out into the vista of this super large open clear-cut area on the edge of this forest yesterday I was like how many 200 plus year old trees did they cut down so that they could build houses here? And this is Norway, right? Like this is a country full of big, wild, lots of nature conservation, lots of preservation of nature. So I'm not trying to make my town out to be the bad guys because they're, they're building more homes in like a residential area of my town. But still I'm like, wow, 200 years this tree grew and we can chop it down in like two seconds. <laughs> This is not metaphorical of a larger way that we treat nature and how quickly we can basically destroy it, right? But there's a psychological thing that people don't care unless they're told to care. I think that's why the conversations around botany, fungi, these conversations are important. And I think a lot of us are yearning for these conversations. We're yearning for something kind of more archaic, something a little older, something before the industrial revolution, because that's how the world was in natural equilibrium for a long time. I think that's something that we're yearning for. I think we're yearning for a time before colonialism. We're yearning for a time before so much destruction and so much lack of care and consideration was was the norm. When I go in the forest, and I know this is kind of sad, but you know, I think that talking about things that are hard and sad, that's more cathartic and more comforting to me than kind of bypassing or not addressing something that is the truth of the matter. But I do find that I have a level of gratitude towards the forest because I have such a deep sensation of how quickly it could disappear 
And I think some people who are very disconnected from nature or who live in cities just assume that like nature is a sort of immutable, unchangeable thing. And we only see a BBC documentary or David Attenborough showing us the extinction of species and things like that. But when we don't live in it every day, we just assume it's happening at a lot slower rate than it actually is. So, I mean, it's sad. And I think a lot of us are feeling that. But I guess it does give me a sense of gratitude for what is still here. And I hope that is still here for my kids. It's a little hard to say, but I think, you know, that's why I'm grateful for the present moment and being centered right here because there's thinking too far ahead when I don't have that much control just makes me freeze and not want to do anything at all. And I find it's a lot more beneficial to keep busy and to keep in that, that positive mindset, you know, headspace, try to lead every day with a lot of love and consideration that I do find reflected so effortlessly in the forest because the forest is so giving. And I think another extension of this conversation, you know, that yes, the trees are speaking amongst one another. Yes, they're speaking through fungi. Yes, they're speaking through the plants between one another. But we also are communicating to the forest that we are there. And the forest knows that we are there when we walk because it is our footsteps that are creating pretty big feedback in the soil whenever we take a single step. Your presence is felt in the forest when you're there. And other animals sometimes know that you're there. And sometimes I think we go into the forest and we just think like, oh, well, I'm just like separate. I'm just passing through and then I'm gonna go back to the comfort of my home, which also could be true to an extent. But when we also feel disconnected and feel like nature is kind of dumb or that because it can't speak, that it's not that aware, doesn't have an awareness that is as as equally powerful as a human brain. And I don't think, I don't like that attitude personally. That's not a, an attitude that makes me feel connected and it doesn't feel very true for me. I've had a lot of really spooky, cool, synchronistic experiences in nature. I found a lot of solutions to problems in my life while being in nature. I have found a level of resoluteness and positive uh, affect for my life after exiting the forest. And even yesterday, I was outside from 12 until 4. I was outside for four hours, and that's the longest I've been outside for months. And how good I felt at the end of the day, my ashwagandha drink aside, my ashwagandha beverage at night aside, was something that felt so good. And that was because I was also breathing in the fresh air. And when we think of fresh air, it's not just oxygen. There are these compounds, volatile organic compounds called phytoncides that are being given off by trees. And not just trees, but many plant botanicals give off these compounds through their aeration, through their aerosols, they have the capacity to boost our immune systems just by breathing them in. I read, I'm not sure what paper it was, but I read in a paper that the volatile compounds coming off of an onion can kill bacteria more effectively than other cleaners. And just from its smell, like its aerating smell can neutralize something, you know? And I think sometimes we don't think that the, the sensation of smell is anything beyond triggering to our nostalgia, <laughs> you know? But smell is a really important sense. But yeah, I'll have a vlog up that will come on in the next couple of days from when I post this podcast episode. And I talk, a, talk and show you me being in the forest and going around and looking at trees and things like that. And it was really nice. Well, I think a lot of us are really attached to the world when we come into the world. And there's so many things we're doing to distract ourselves from the fact that this is such a fleeting experience to be here. But climate change is really showing us the impermanence of life at, at a rate that is kind of scary. 
And I think we have a choice in that moment and we have a choice every day with this knowledge about our changing ecology. You know, we have a choice to show up and still leave whatever impact we can to give something back to the forest or to give positive energy back to the forest or to encourage other people to go out and explore and have some regard and reverence for the forest. Um, we still have that decision. You know, it's not like it is the end, but I don't necessarily find it useful to pretend like things aren't changing. It's, it's, it's sort of like when your parents would lie to you and you knew that they were lying to just try to assuage you. Kids don't like to be lied to and my inner child doesn't like to be lied to and I'd rather know what the problem is so that I can take whatever small steps to try to mitigate it on a daily basis versus like being like everything's falling better in my head in the sand like Gen X and baby boomers. <laughs> no thanks. Now, some of you might not know some of the different connections that roots of plants make with fungi in the soil and there are quite a few and i admittedly am not yet super well versed in them but i want to talk about two different two different general ways that you will find plants and fungi connecting within their roots and this one ecto ectomycorrhizal fungi are actually the least least common but they are really important to especially where i live big coniferous forests boreal landscapes um, a couple others but yeah where there are giant conifers that um, type of ectomycorrhizal relationship is really important for these big trees growing around me and so what ectomycorrhizal means is that where the roots of the tree end the they those parts of the roots of the end of the tree for example are fusing and overlapping with the roots of mycelium but that's it there is a fusing there is a can really really tight liminal connection between the roots but the roots are not going any higher than just the roots and usually not always but usually the mycorrhizal fungi are a type of basidiomycete which would be your general run-of-the-mill mushroom that releases spores outwardly and that's the difference between a basidiomycete and an ascomycete ascomycetes have their spores within themselves and don't release them outwardly necessarily but basidiomycetes they're going to have gills they're going to have spores they're going to have pores and those are going to release the spores outwardly into the air so it's typically a basidiomycetes think a bolet or an amanita a very typical mushroom run of your mill mushroom is, is going to have an ectomycorrhizal relationship to the tree you only get to see the amanita or the bolet for a few weeks or a couple of months out of the year but that fungi or fungal mycelium is always there working with the best interest of the trees and the surrounding plants it's not just like oh this mushroom popped up because it wanted to be eaten by an animal or it wanted to spread its spores and then go back underground and go live its best life on its own no like the amanita is doing things for the trees for the soil for the integrity of the land year round but since humans can't see it we tend to think oh well they ain't doing nothing they're high they're they're totally dormant and then we have the arbuscular fungi and the majority of plants have a relationship with what are called a am fungi right arbuscular fungi not every single type like so this is where it gets a little bit foggy for me even so i will definitely follow up when i have a little more information but when i think of arbuscular fungi i think of the kind of fungi that is endophytic and there are different types of different types of endophytes like different types of ways that the roots of the mycelium will grow up into the plant like there are different ways that it happens but you can think of endophytic fungi or the kind of fungi as growing up within between the cell walls of plants. So they're not just going to the roots, they're taking it several steps further. 
Like you don't, <laughs> I think about it like a drinking straw. You know, like there's a difference between a drinking straw and a feeding tube, like ectomycorrhizal fungi is like a drinking straw. The, but the, the endophytic fungi is like a, like a breathing tube or like a feeding tube or something. Like it's going all the way through down to the stomach and you have to do even less, less work than an ectomycorrhizal fungi would have to do. And if you look at pictures of endophytic fungi or AM fungi and the way that their mycelium grows up into the plant, sometimes you can actually see it through the plant leaves. Like you might mistake it for bacteria or lichen. Sometimes it could be. A lot of times though, you'll look at the leaves of trees and it's a type of endophytic fungi that has grown up into the tree and is supplying the, um, the plant with nutrients and minerals from the soil. But then it makes you question like if, like that's a pretty invasive thing for a fungi to do, to grow up into and between the cell walls of the plant. It really brings up a conversation from our lichen podcast about like how how different are these species when they're working so closely to one, one another. But yeah, the majority of the plants in the world have some type of fungal relationship. They have some connection to mycelium and the other tiny percentage, I don't know what they're doing. This is something I was looking up. I'm like, how do some of these plants have the mechanisms to survive on their own when it is just so much more beneficial to be working together with fungi? And I honestly could not find any research and maybe I need to go and look at some different like scholarly journal sites other than just the JSTOR and I couldn't find much when I was Googling it. I could find that there was a research that was done between an olive tree that had and didn't have a relationship to fungi when it was subjected to saline, but the saline, like like salt, right? Like the salt tolerance of the olive trees. And obviously the olive tree had more tolerance to salt or sodium when it had an ectomycorrhizal connection than when it didn't. But it wasn't showing this between other plants that don't have a don't have the capacity for a fungal connection. And I was looking up different families of botanicals that don't have necessarily a relationship to fungi. And the biggest one that I found was the brassica family, which are cabbages. And I was like, cabbages have no relationship to fungi. And it's not all, some do, some don't. But I'm wondering, what are they doing not having a connection? How are they How are they doing it? Do they have these mechanisms themselves to protect themselves and to gain nutrients themselves without the use of fungi? Are they really existing outside of the rest of the environment or like far removed from the rest of the environment? And if so, how are they doing that? And I was looking it up, guys. I couldn't find any research. I could not find it. But if you find any, let me know. I'm definitely on the search for that information. Now, speaking of mycorrhiza and cultivation of mycorrhiza. It's really hard to cultivate in general. It is pretty difficult to cultivate wild mushrooms. The reason being that wild mushrooms that specifically grow to have a relationship with a tree or with botanicals means that they're a bit codependent and just pulling some spores of mycelium from a specific nondescript mycorrhizal fungi and trying to replant it in a lab is not often successful because there are plenty of things that that mushroom needs to thrive. Likewise, when you try to just plant tree saplings without their spores for their mycorrhiza, usually doesn't end up well or end up boding well for the tree. But with that being said, the more we learn about the interdependence of these, these interdependence between species and between kingdoms, we it does make it easier or helps us with cultivating different types of fungi, like the black winter truffle has now been cultivated and different strains of morels, right? Morchellas have also been cultivated. One of huge culinary interest that wasn't up until recently cultivated was the black morel. And if you didn't know, like there are a lot of species of edible morels. 
I didn't know this. I thought there was only a couple, but there are a lot. The black morel, though, was one that wasn't was had, we had reached an outdoor cultivation process with it, but not an indoor cultivation. Which you're removing. Obviously, indoor cultivation is is further removed from the soil, right? And you have to recreate more of the factors that would contribute to the successful growth of that fungi on your own, which are more factors. The substrate, the acidity, the different other types of botanicals that need to be nearby. There are a lot of factors. The amount of water, when you water it, how much you water it. Same thing with truffles, right? It's a very, it's a very finicky process, if you will. But nonetheless, twins from Denmark have been working for 45 years to cultivate black morels indoors and have succeeded. They're only giving so much information about how this has occurred and it is available on their website, but there's a lot about it that they're also keeping a secret, but I don't think it's led to commercial cultivation yet. They have cultivated them indoors, but yet you still cannot buy them at the store, which I think is a little unfortunate. I haven't actually even tried a morel. I only see at the store though, that, that there is a tiny bag of morels that are dried that I could buy and rehydrate and cook, but it's also really expensive for a tiny bag, like not worth it even for me as someone who is a mycological lover to just buy it unless I had a lot of disposable income. You know, it just feels a little wasteful when I could just buy other mushrooms or use my own other mushrooms that I have stored dried, you know. Uh, I did try the black trumpet, the black trumpet in a little dried bag yesterday. I'll put it in the vlog as well. I tried that in a mushroom sauce I made yesterday and it was delicious because <laughs> I rehydrated it and I made sure that when I needed to thin out the sauce, I used some of the water from the black trumpet mushrooms. Those were great. But yeah, going back to morels, because they haven't been created um, into commercial cultivation yet, they're not as readily available, so they're quite expensive. Nonetheless, though, when I was learning more about the cultivation of morels outdoors, I also found, and I'd like to do an episode about this, like urban fungal farming and the sort of counterculture that is associated with people like living in concrete jungles, but growing morels in their backyard. I found it really interesting. It's definitely, there's definitely a couple of like families on YouTube that are doing that and they seem like super radical and it's pretty cool, but it's definitely a concept and something that I'm like, well, if these people can do it in like inner city Chicago, why am I not going around the forest here and trying to do something like that myself? Morals do grow in the boreal landscape here. They're not as common, but they, they can be found. And I was learning more about like going out and foraging for morels. Um, just maybe you'll want some of this information if you too are also looking to have your first bite of a morel. Um, there's a video from Learn Your Land and he talks a lot about like what you need to do in order to find morels. And his biggest tip was you need to go and keep looking <laughs> and know the season that they grow and go back to the same places over and over and over and over again. And another thing is that morels really blend in in the forest floor. Like they, you can overlook them so easily. And that's another reason why you might not find them. And also other people are competing to find them with you too. So you might find that um, you were just in a place where a morale was, but somebody else got it before you. Another thing he talks about is the passing down of generational knowledge of specific places to find different mycorrhiza. And that you might just be SOL if you don't have a grandpa that knows where to go find the morels. Like you have to like go out and do the work yourself. So you could you know, join a group. And this is something I'd like to do in my town is just get more involved in the local community of foragers to see who's willing to share information because a lot of people aren't. 
which is fine. You know, maybe you have all of, you know, guarded this information and you want to keep it for yourself. But something I might recommend for those of you looking to go out and find these mushrooms that seem kind of hard to find is join the local group, find the Facebook group, find out if they go and do like foraging together. Because I think that even if people are really hesitant to give that information, that ultimately if you form a genuine relationship with them, then they'll be more giving. Like I know I would be. Like if someone were as equally as interested in like foraging and I knew that they'd want to share information with me, I would definitely want to share it with them, you know? But you don't want to just give it to somebody who saunders in like, I'm here to find morels and I've never been in the forest before in my life. Like go home. You know what I mean? I'm not sure. Like I I have a couple of Facebook groups I follow in Norway. Uh, there's one some heter vi som like sop and it's called We That Likes Mushrooms. <laughs> That's the group. And I see people share some buckets of well sure chanterelles, saffron milk caps, bolets galore like porcinis. Um, and then sometimes here and there people are sharing big baskets of morels and I'm like are you in Italy? <laughs> but no, I guess it is here. One of the things too is that I live on a mountainside, like the altitude of my city is a bit higher and altitude really affects um, the types of mushrooms you'll find as well. So actually going further south where it's a little warmer and a bit more flat might be a good place to go. Maybe I need to find friends in Southern Norway. Uh, another thing too, with those of you who are antsy and who've been reaching out to me on the, on, or I guess rather in Deems, in the Deems on the gram, have been sharing with me what you're growing. A lot of you are growing mushrooms at home and I've definitely wanted to do it. And admittedly, I haven't yet. There is an account on, uh, on in, I guess they're a business in Norway and their name is Sporhaug and they're growing all sorts of mushrooms on the east coast of Norway. And they definitely sell their mushrooms, uh, their culinary mushrooms. And I reached out to them to ask if they had any spray kits, some grow, grow kits. There's a lot of grow kits from Sweden, but I'm not sure if you can import them into Norway. It might just be safer to order within my country. And I know there's a lot of grow kits in America, but shipping them overseas, I think that could be a whole thing and they might get discarded at the border. I'm not sure. But I'm definitely interested and feel currently most comfortable with growing uh, some oysters. Those are really easy to grow. Just get the sort of cut through the center of the bag and spray it every day for four days or however long. I would love to start with that. I was also watching how to grow some reishi. That takes a lot longer, but that might be fun. Here's my issue though. Maybe my reverence for the forest is going to translate into me having more plants in my home, but the only plants I have in my home are cacti because they're really hard to kill because I'm pretty forgetful with taking care of plants indoors. And I've always been pretty honest with myself about that. As much as I love nature, like my ability to take care of it. I bought some hydrangeas, like my neighborhood, like don't get me wrong, where I live in Norway, this neighborhood, people are obsessed in the summer with having the most amazing gardens, right? Like this fleeting short summery season, everyone has so many beautiful flowers. And I tried it one year, but like I forgot to put my hydrangeas in the garage and then they just fried in the sun in a day. And I was like, I need some saguaros, you know? Never say never. Maybe I'm going to get more into it and want to do these experiments because I have a son, right? Who's, I'm going to want to teach about the forest and things like that. So maybe. Uh, another episode I'd like to do in the future has to do with uh, radioactive sites and how nature has bounced back really quickly and how some fungi have the ability to digest radioactive materials really well. I'm curious about that one. And that, and then also the plastic digesting fungi, that's going to be coming up soon that's like in the next couple of months it has to be i guess another thing is if you are listening to the podcast and you're not following me online i know the last episode like i get so excited to put out the information i'll forget to plug like where you can find me or to remind to give reviews and things like that it is really important because i put a lot of time and effort like many podcasters do and a lot of care into creating these episodes for you 
And it's important that I remind you all to be following and to be saving and sharing posts and telling friends about podcasting, um, about this podcast specifically. But you can find me at future.mycelium on Instagram. And that is more of my, my personal and podcasting account. And then I also have my Mushroom Affirmations page as well. And that one's obviously, I do share the podcast there, but that's more just mushroom affirmations and easily digestible mushroomy content. If you're listening to me on Spotify, Spotify now has a really easy way to give a five-star rating. All you have to do is press a button. If you could do that, that would be really great for the algorithm. I noticed on the podcasting, I guess Google Podcasts, if you search your niche, that when when you look up on the Google search tab, I'm showing up which is great. Um, I'm starting to be noticed. We also surpassed a thousand downloads on the podcast total mm, a few days ago, and we're averaging a couple hundred downloads, about 150 to 200 downloads a week now, which is also great. And I totally get it where like you are somebody who listens to podcasts, but you don't really want your social media feed clogged up with with like information from them, you know, I think usually when I listen to podcasts, like I have to listen to them for a long time before I actually want to follow them online. Cause like, I don't care. <laughs> and if you're like that, listening is enough. It's fine. You don't need to see my face every day. I also have a YouTube and I have been vlogging on and off for years. One of my majors at university was film guys, film and media production. And people are like, what are you going to do with that when you grow up? Well, here we are talking about mushrooms. Yeah, you can find me, but it's just going to be my, um, it's just my name, Jenna Masomi. And I've been uploading some vlogs that are much more fungi related and trying to upload a supplemental vlog for every podcast episode now. So if you go and watch, I will basically show you behind the scenes of me working on the podcast, my ideas for it, going out to nature, some food I make, my more personal life, things that come up alongside while I'm making the podcast things like that. Other mushroom surprises. You never know what you're going to find in a vlog. But yeah, I've been posting those alongside these episodes. So I guess with that, I don't have a whole lot else to say. I just hope you guys are doing all right. These have been some rough times and I sort of felt like maybe a more laid back, unscripted, talking about fungi, you know, talking about what's been in my brain in a more unstructured way would be worth listening to. I haven't, no, here's the thing too. If you guys have been writing reviews for me, I don't know how to look for them. I like the ones that you write. I have seen a couple, but I don't like, if you have written one and you want me to write it, you want me to say it on the show, can you just email me at futuremyceliumpod at gmail.com or just copy paste it into a message to me on the gram? Then I will share it here unless nobody is writing reviews. And here's the thing. I also get it. People are always like, write a review. And I'm like, well, I only listen on Spotify. That's also okay. But if you have a review for me and you want me to read it and you didn't post it anywhere else, that's also okay. I will share it because you just sent it to me. And I thought that was nice of you. But if you've written on Google podcasts or iTunes, I don't know how to find it. And one time I did find a review and then it disappeared. And I was like, did they delete it? So just know that if you send me an email, I will bring it up in the podcast. (laughs) Send it before this podcast gets too big, guys. (laughs) Or if you have thoughts, feelings, you can hit me up. um, You can hit me up on Instagram as well. But if you want me to like talk about it on the podcast, I think my brain compartmentalizes it where if I got an email, I definitely bring it up. But if you bring it up in passing while you're messaging me about other stuff on Instagram, I might forget. 
So just food for thought. I did have a follower recently ask as well about including First Nations and Indigenous people's stories on the podcast. And all signs are pointing to 100%. Every episode I do reminds me that there are people who never forgot the language of nature. And those are the people that are protecting 80% of the land's biodiversity. I have some books I want to read because I also, when I do the more structured podcast episodes, I want to make sure I have some breadth of knowledge to share before I speak about it. And there's a lot that I don't know about Indigenous people. And I don't like to monotonize um, Indigenous peoples across even the United States. Like there are so many different different cultural practices and knowledge about the land that differs. So I wouldn't like to come in and just talk about it when I don't well, I haven't taken the time to learn some of those distinctions and to specifically find some people who would be a good fit to come on and talk that would like to share their experiences. I'm going to get on with my day, and you should too. Chin up, hennies. You can always choose to make little moments of your day fabulous, and when in doubt, cry it out, and then put on some heels, put on some makeup, dance, do something crazy. You know, something that's also being born out of this crazy time for me and the sensation that every life is so fragile and fleeting is I feel a lot less, I feel a lot less of a need to have an official self. You know, like the person, I spent my whole life taking myself so seriously and mincing words and bending over backwards for people. And I'm just at a point in my life where I'm like, if global warming is going to turn into full collapse, would I have wanted to be boring up until the time that happened? No. <laughs> Would I have wanted to be complaining and whining and being I wouldn't I wouldn't want to spend the rest of my known days and I don't mean to catastrophize it. Like maybe things are going to be fine. Okay. Like, I don't know. But that's the thing. The fact that we don't know should inform what decisions we make with how we show up in the world and what energy we give to ourselves and others. And I'd rather do that in the most authentic way, even if it's a little weird. I think everyone's weird. Even people who pretend to be really normal are like super weird to me, but I don't know. That's just me. So keep staying weird. Keep growing your mushrooms. Send me pictures of your mushrooms. Um, tell me anything you want to hear on the podcast. Give me, uh, if there's anything I've said that's been wrong on the podcast, feel free to light my butt on fire and let me know that I said something wrong. No problem admitting when I've made a mistake or I've had a little slip up. Um, not a problem. Love to hear from you. Love to learn from you all. Love that spring is coming soon. And you bet I'm going to be making an effort to go out and maybe make some some of those really awesome mushroom flat lays like Shrew Mama does and uh, Small Woodland Things. Small Woodland Things said they were going to come on my podcast too, maybe in April. Oh, uh, like a spring episode. If you guys aren't following, following Small Woodland Things, that's Heather. And she does all those super, super amazing mushroom flat lays the very dramatic ones that are super colorful like gradient mushroom flat lays and they're in my mushroom affirmations sometimes i just use her photos only and she was gonna come on and talk to me about creativity and fungi and she's also doing a survival school and she's somebody who really knows the land really well and so i'm hoping to bring her on in april as well if you have any other episode recommendations or anything else you'd like to hear on the podcast in the future let me know if you guys liked this mushroom after hours podcast where we just kind of chatted about things in my brain then you guys like that let me know otherwise we can change the structure of it here we are we're here to experiment it's episode nine baby where we can take it in, in another direction and i felt a calling to just relax i'm tired of the seriousness of the world i'm going back to my hut after this <laughs> all right i'll talk to y'all later bye